This podcast is brought to you by AJ Bell and Shares Magazine. Shares Magazine is published by AJ Bell Media, part of AJ Bell. Hello and welcome to another edition of the Money and Markets podcast. I'm Dan Coatesworth. Today we're going to be analysing some pretty astonishing earnings figures from three of America's tech giants and asking why they don't seem to be pleasing investors. So joining me today is Danny Hewson. Hi, Dan. Sticking with markets, we've seen the biggest two-day fall in shares of Chinese companies listed on US markets since the financial crisis this week as Beijing continues to flex its regulatory muscles. Yeah, since there's been such a big focus on the tech sector at the moment, I've been chatting with Tom Wildgoose from Nomura about investing in Google and $13 billion dialysis group Devita. With warnings from Pepsi, Coca-Cola and this week Reckitt Benkiser that rising materials costs will have to be passed on to consumers, I've been chatting with Jed Futter from retail consultancy GSCOP about he's helping suppliers deal with the changing landscape, plus the latest on the bid on the table from Morrison's. And Tom Selby will be joining us for another Pensions Corner with this week's question focused on building a savings pot for your kids. And while we're talking kids, Jenny Owens has been digging into the thorny issue of pocket money. So lots to get through today, including what to look for in your travel insurance policy if you're heading abroad and worried you might get pinged. And also some calls from MPs to ensure that public electric car charging points must be priced fairly. But first, we're going to start with the latest earning reports from three huge tech beasts. Uh, we had a numbers overnight, Dan, from Apple, Google as parent company Alphabet and Microsoft. And we did expect them to be good. But good is frankly an understatement here. Well, yeah. I mean, let's start with Apple. So strong demand for premium iPhones helped the company to deliver bumper sales of $81.4 billion in its latest quarter. Now, that's pretty impressive as it struggled off the impact of chip shortages. You know, revenues were up 36% on a year earlier, while you know, profits were nearly doubled from $11.3 billion to $21.7 billion. You know, this, this growth is, is particularly coming from China, um, where there's been big demand for, for you know, the iPhone and, and the Mac computers and also those wearable products. But, you know, you mentioned about um, yeah, it's not always good news, but you know, the, the share price fell in after hours trading. And I think it's partially down to, you know, Apple warning about that, you know, we've got these chip supply constraints. And whilst, you know, earnings have been spectacular in the previous quarter, they might actually hit uh, sales of iPhones and iPads this current quarter. And I, you know, and I think this is, um, you know, this is a tone that we're seeing across so many different companies now, you know, spectacular figures, but it's just something there for investors to sort of dig a bit deeper and that, you know, they just don't like what could be coming on the horizon there. You know, so, you know, Microsoft is the same, uh, you know, grew annual profits by 38% to $61.3 billion. You know, big demand for software and cloud computing services during the pandemic. But now investors are worried about potential slowdown in the rate of growth for this cloud operations. And also the Xbox games consoles as well. There was a bit of a slight fall in revenue there. But, you know, I think the demand for the latest versions of the consoles is still booming, though. Yeah, 
I suppose the thing about it is, is while we've all been stuck at home, you know, kitting out our home office and having nothing to do maybe but play games, we really have been, you know, paying into their coffers. And I don't think anyone expects that that sort of pandemic boom can continue. No, I think, well, investors shouldn't take this as a surprise. There was a company um, that was reported the other day, Moonpig. I mean, this is a much smaller company, but on you know, selling greetings cards online. And it came out and said, well, you know, the rate of growth is going to be nowhere near what we've just had in the past year. That shouldn't shock anyone. You know, we're all stuck at home. No one was going off to to card shops to buy birthday you know christmas cards but they can do it now so it's, it makes sense but I, I just think that um perhaps you know we're seeing big overreactions with you know, from the stock market to to figures and you know perhaps we want to be you know fast forward three months be interesting to see whether these these stocks will pick up again uh perhaps investors take take a kind of longer term view and of course the one one we haven't talked about yet is Google owner Alphabet, and actually this got a good reception from the market. So you know it stood out from the crowd. Better than expected, sixty-two percent surge in revenue um, to sixty-one point nine billion for the April to June quarter. You know, and this has all been driven by advertising. So I don't know what it's like for you, Danny, but you know, have you been sitting at home with your feet up, a cup of tea, and watching YouTube? I bet your kids have been. So. <laughs> TikTok, that's the one here. I'm oh. afraid. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, my, my kids are totally all over YouTube, and you know. Of course, when you watch these scenes, you get a little advert at the start. Advertising has just gone through the roof. And we've just seen that with ITV figures as well. Really strong advertising. But I guess the big question is, you know, if, if the economy loses steam and you know, will that make some companies think twice about you know, continuing to push their products in the way that they've been doing in the last six months or so? I don't know what it says about me, but the adverts that are coming to me on my Facebook page at the moment are either for food or workouts. I mean, yeah. <laughs> well, we you talk- know, so I guess with with Facebook, it's saying that you know, you know, go go off and enjoy your you know big meals, but you'll have to work out afterwards to to burn those calories off. I think that's probably uh, fairly accurate, to be honest with you. Um, <laughs> another big story that's dominating chatter at the moment is the incredible route that we've seen in US-listed Chinese stock. It's had an impact, obviously, on market in Hong Kong as well. What's going on and will it continue? Well, I, OK, I, just don't don't call me Mr. Pessimistic, but I think this is going to blow up into <laughs> something really, really big in the coming months. Yeah. If you go back to to April, we had 2.8 billion fine on Alibaba for anti-monopoly actions. Last year, the fintech group Ant Financial had its stock market listing blocked by Chinese regulators. They sort of said, you've got to comply with some new capital client requirements and sort of make some other changes. So I think up to that point, the market was like, "Mm, okay, you know, we're quite used to, you know, Chinese authorities um, sticking their noses in a bit, but, you know, we'll, we'll, we'll... it's still, you know, China's still looking quite interesting place in which to to put your money. Then we had, you know, the, um, the ride hailing app Diddy was told that it had to be taken off domestic app stores. And that was just after it listed in the US, a so big share price decline then. And then there was chatter about lots of Chinese companies sort of saying, actually, maybe we better not list in New York. We'll, we'll switch it to listing in you know, domestically in China. Over the weekend, we had some rumors that China was going to make changes to the private education industry, banning companies that teach school curriculum subjects from making profits from raising capital or listing on stock exchanges worldwide. I mean, if, if, 
if that does go ahead, that would definitely deter foreign investment. And we've already seen share prices collapse in some of the related companies like Tal Education. And, you know, I think that suddenly investors are just looking at this space and saying, OK, you know, the Chinese government seems to be wanting to take even more control over you know, Chinese companies. And uh, it's probably quite aware that loads of money to support their growth is now coming from overseas. And I don't know if it really likes that. So the, the, the risk to me is that investors are going to get nervous and going to look at potentially Chinese focused funds and investment trusts and even spread to emerging market funds that have got stakes in Chinese companies and say, well, you know, perhaps we want to be reducing our exposure here. Do we want to be invested in a place where the government is like on a on a mission to take control? And of course, you know, that's not be dictating how much money they can earn and what their returns could be. So I I just think that all signs point towards this being a really troubling thing. And I'm, I'm no doubt we'll be talking about it again on the podcast soon. No doubt. It's uh, how difficult are authorities prepared to make it for private businesses in order to to do the things that they want to do? And, uh, you know, where does pragmatism stand against politics? It's going to be fascinating to see what happens. Before we chat about results from a British consumer goods giant and a warning about price increases, Dan's had an interesting chat with fund manager Tom Wildgoose about where to invest if growth and value aren't your flavour of the month. Where to invest? Well, saying that the answer actually might be quality companies. He's also shared his thoughts on Google and why he has something in common with the world's most famous investor, Warren Buffett. Tom is the co-manager of the Nomura Global High Conviction Fund. Let's hear what he had to say. So growth stocks went out of favour in late 2020 as market rotated towards value stocks. But now it seems like value is losing momentum. So, Tom, where should investors actually be putting their money yeah, it's a great question. Um, what we've seen is quite a rotation from growth to value and then now back to growth again. Um, and, and, uh, one thing I'd point to really is the correlation you see between growth outperforming and bond yields. So uh, as people thought the economy was getting better, bond yields going up, growth underperformed. And then from about mid-May, um, people started to worry about uh, other things, namely the Delta variant of COVID, uh, you know, sort of spreading more um, more extensively, and bond yields started to go down again, uh, and growth started to outperform. Um, now people are talking about the cycle peaking, um, and again, that would probably be negative for value stocks. So, conclusion, you really join, draw from that, bearing in mind all we've talked about is a sort of six month period or maybe at a push 12-month period. So a lot of movements in a relatively short time. My advice or my thought, if you like, is that we sidestep that should we buy growth now, should we buy value now type uh, discussion and say you should, you should buy a fund that is not taking its returns from either of those factors. Um, you should pick a fund or pick an investor that's, that's using bottom-up uh, detailed stock analysis to choose um, a variety of stocks of various styles that have uh, upside to their intrinsic value. Uh, and that's exactly what we do. So we're looking for high-quality companies when they're trading at a discount to their intrinsic value. And we don't really care whether they're classified as value or growth. 
Uh, we just want to see, you know, a high quality business and have some conviction or thesis that there's upside to what we think the business is actually worth. Because I, I know when lots of people look at the quality space, actually, you know, loads of stocks that fall under that banner actually trade on quite high ratings. So you could you could argue they're expensive, yet loads of them seem to deliver quite low levels of growth, particularly the, the consumer goods company. So, I mean, obviously, when you're looking to decide what to put into your portfolio, mm. um, I guess you're saying that you're looking for something that's trading below sort of the intrinsic value. But you must you must want some level of growth um, to warrant owning it. Yeah, that's a, another great question. I mean, we, we, we define quality as strong competitive advantages, cash returns to shareholders, skilled management, and in particular, skills in capital allocation, and attractive returns on invested capital and the opportunity to reinvest in uh, at attractive rates of uh, return on invested capital. That, that's our four criteria. You, you'll notice that in that group, of, or the, in that four, we don't mention the word growth. Um, now, a lot of people will look at it and say quality means cash flow growth. And I think if a company is ticking all of our boxes, it's probably going to grow its cash flow at a very nice rate. But you don't necessarily have to see that. Um, what you do want to see is a very sustainable, uh, well-positioned business um, that is able to uh, you know, meet our criteria for quality, but for whatever reason is trading at a discount to intrinsic value. That's what we're doing. Uh, so quality for us is those four things. Some of them will have cash flow growth. Some of them could be quite cyclical. Um, but if you're if you're meeting three or four out of four of those criteria, then then it's in the in the zone for us, if you like. And then it's a focus on valuation. Um, I mean, in, in any other walk of life, everyone loves a bargain. Everyone wants to see something in the shop that's that's usually priced at 100, but you can buy it for, you know, 85. Everyone wants that. When it comes to investing in stocks, people seem to throw that very simple um you know, approach to 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 uh, making purchasing decisions out the window, um, yeah. which is a bit peculiar, but that's the way it is. So, so let's let's talk about some of the companies actually in your portfolio, just to sort of give our listeners a bit more context about the sort of thing that you back. So, yeah. you know, we, we we know about the benefits of Google having a really powerful search engine, but you know, what is it about Google's parent company Alphabet that warrants it being your biggest holding? Yeah, that's a great question. Yeah, we've we've held uh, Alphabet for a long time, a very long time, and actually among the um, the large cap uh, tech stocks or internet stocks, it's it's one of the ones which would screen, let's say, as more value. Um, it's it's not you know outrageously uh, valued on on a multiples basis, um, which of course is what you'd expect from our approach. Um, well, we tend to feel that. This is a really great company generating really great returns. It's got a extremely strong competitive position. Uh, it returns cash. It's got skilled management. The returns on invested capital are high. Um, so you know, in a in a uh, in a kind of a growth period, uh, yeah, it's going to do quite well. Well, because it's a sort of secular share gainer. Uh, in obviously in on, online advertising uh, from its search business, but also it has. Um, some great other offerings like YouTube, for example, uh, which are very, very doing very well and very strong. But even if the market sentiments, you know, favours perhaps reopening stories, then Alphabet again can participate quite well, but given the cyclical nature of um, of advertising. So 
Uh, we think it's actually a very nicely positioned company with some really great products um, that should do well over a long period of time uh, and generate a lot of cash for the business, uh, which, of course, as shareholders, we'll, we'll benefit from. Aside from that, it, it also has um, quite an interesting cloud business, which you might not normally think of uh, for, for well, Alphabet stroke Google. Uh, Google Cloud Platform and, or, and, and its workspace product um, really offer quite a lot of long-term upside. Uh, this, have, this is a business that is similar to Amazon Web Services, for example, offers uh, cloud-based services to companies large and small. Uh, there's really three big ones, Amazon, Microsoft, and Google. Google would be number three, but it's, it's growing very quickly. They've only just started breaking this out in the results. Uh, and so you can see this business is growing nicely. It's still negative on the operating profit line. Uh, because it's relatively early stage and it is there's also quite a lot of depreciation in there at this state, stage in its life. But we expect it to turn profitable in the same way that Amazon Web Services is already profitable. And that's going to generate a lot of, uh, of value for the company. So there's a few products there and, and business lines there, which you don't normally think of with uh, Alphabet, but uh, they're really quite strong, well positioned. Yeah. So another one of your holdings is um, the healthcare group, DeVita. So uh, I do notice that that's a, a nearly a quarter owned by Warren Buffett's company, Berkshire Hathaway. So yeah, you know, yeah. what Warren Buffett's kind of known to being a value investor. So what, how come this this stock is on your radar if you're sort of more of a quality sort of person? Yeah, that's a great question. I'm really glad you asked that, actually. It's, it's, you know, this is one of those sort of misperceptions about the Buffett approach um, that he He's buying, you know, very anything very cheap. Uh, I think it's because he started off as a, as the sort of uh, let's say um, uh, following the, the Ben Graham approach, and the Ben Graham approach, or the, the you know the father of value investing, was uh, picking up fag butt or cigar butt investments. There might not be much puff left, but whatever puff is there is free. Uh, that's the sort of mantra of a <laughs> of a Ben Graham stock. Buffett has, has adapted that, and in combination with his right hand man or long term business partner Charlie Munger, has adapted that. And so I give you a quote, which I think explains it, and a couple from Charlie Munger as well. Buffett's one of the Buffett's famous quotes: "It's far better to buy a wonderful company at a fair price and a fair company at a wonderful price," which immediately starts to make you think. Okay, so this guy is really starting to look for good companies uh, at a decent price rather than any old company at a dirt cheap price. Um, and, and that's where that quality angle comes in. So I think the idea of a value investor being someone who only buys low quality companies, but when they're really cheap is rather misleading. So what I, I don't, I'm not sure that DeVita is really a sort of a, a household name for people in the UK. Can, can you sort of give an overview of exactly what it does? It's, it's dialysis, yeah. isn't it? It's That's right. Yes. Yeah. So yeah. of course, the, the US health industry uh, or industry, let's say, is completely different to the UK. Obviously, we have the NHS, uh, and more or less, you know, I was going to say more or less all, but certainly excluding the private healthcare, it's all. Um, state-owned, owning the hospitals and everything, and employing everyone and providing, uh, you know, free healthcare at the point of um, consumption. In the US, obviously, it's all private, uh, largely uh, covered by private health insurance. Uh, but also, there's there's other parts of there's parts of the population which are covered by various state 
type insurance. Medicare is one of them, uh, and, a, and, a, and an offshoot of that, Medicare Advantage. Um, so Devita is, as you said, a dialysis provider. It's operating more or less in a duopoly with another company, Fresenius, uh, providing uh, on a private basis to insured and, st- and, and private and or state insured uh, patients uh, regular dialysis treatment for people with end stage renal disease. Uh, so it's a it's a life saving treatment, uh, very critical, very much needed, and it's a very concentrated industry, uh, which it can be quite uh, lucrative, I think. Um, now, of course, it's highly regulated, and so there's a, and obviously it's politically charged. So these companies are not uh, pricing excessively high, highly, but they are making good returns. And moreover, the area where they make least money is slowly changing, and that would be in the Medicare part, which is essentially the state the state insured part. Those patients are transferring onto um, a different approach to uh, payment. And as a consequence, we think DeVita will start to make more money from them, which will be positive for its long-term returns. And people really haven't come to realise that just yet. Perfect. Tom, thank you ever so much for joining us. Really great to talk to you. Thanks a lot. Thanks, Dan. Fascinating stuff. Um, we had an interesting update from consumer goods giant Reckitt Benkheiser this week. Uh, despite a surge in revenue because of a huge demand, uh, unsurprisingly, for disinfectants and soaps, shares dipped substantially for two reasons. Now, one, because the chief executive said they'd reached peak demand. It's kind of like what was going on with uh, investors in those tech companies peak demand in things like disinfectants, and also because of a surge in the cost of raw materials, which will result in higher prices for consumers. We've heard similar stories in the past few weeks from many manufacturers, including Coca-Cola and Pepsi. So to find out how widespread the issue is, I've been chatting to Jed Futter from the retail consultancy practice GSCOP Limited, which works with suppliers to big supermarkets. Now, I know in the interview that you did, you do ask him about Morrison's, uh, but actually, you know, we've just had an update from the supermarket's biggest shareholder, Silchester Asset Management, which said it's not inclined to support the bid. Now, that's really interesting because it it owns 15.1% of the company. And, you know, the the private equity consortium, which is sort of led by Fortress, they need 75% of investors to back the deal. So uh, I think all eyes are going to be looking at some of the other big shareholders and thinking, are you going to support this or not? So, you know, and just as we're recording this, the Singapore Sovereign Wealth Fund, GIC, has stepped in and said it's going to join this consortium to help fund the deal. But, you know, you know, all eyes are just thinking, looking at this and saying, well, you know, is this consortium going to have to increase its offer or are we still in the market for someone else to come in and say, I'm going to pay a higher price. I think a lot of people are still wondering whether Amazon will uh, ever sort of get themselves into the game. It's not looking likely. It's not the kind of thing that they normally do. But it is looking like a tough sell. Um, The meeting of shareholders is on the 16th of August. And I did start my chat with Jed, asking him what he thinks of the deal on the table. I think all the retail sector is is undervalued. But one of the reasons it's undervalued, I think, is because actually 
it's it's not somewhere where you're going to see huge amounts of growth, huge amount of change. And that's what generally that's what investors like. They like to be in an industry or a sector where actually there's going to be huge growth. And grocery retail is not that sector. Uh, what it will do is it will give you a return. It will give you a good return every single year. And so for some investors, that's, that's what they're looking for. Um, but generally, I think most investors aren't aren't looking for that kind of very low low level growth, or even market share wise going backwards, because that's what's been happening for most of them for the past few years. It's going backwards. I mean, I had a look last week at what's been happening with over the past ten years, and the big four they've lost nearly nearly ten percent of the market their market share in the past ten years. So, would that mean that they're it's attractive for for many investors? Probably not. Even though they, slightly, they say they they own their own sites, they're vertically integrated, so they are a very well-run business. The argument um, from Silchester is that they don't feel that the bid could generate any additional oomph for the supermarket that that couldn't be done by the existing structure. I absolutely agree. <laughs> I can't. I don't. I don't see what what they were going to bring because all that generally what you see from private equity uh, bids are that actually they they don't want to put money in. They want to take money out. So that's if 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 Morrison's currently is a listed business wanted to sell and lease back their sites, they could do that. They don't. They don't need a private equity company to come in and do that. So. They were looking at what would happen if they were bought out. Then, then there would be over three hundred million pounds of money going to the banks, to um, all sorts of other uh, areas. So that's three hundred million pounds that Morrison's could use that very wisely indeed. Now, Fortress, of course, have said that they intend to be good stewards of the business. That at the moment, certainly, they've got no interested in selling uh, and leasing back these great big boxes that Morrison's owns. But I guess the proof with all of these things is always in the eating. It absolutely it is, yes. So I cannot believe that they would go in there and there wouldn't be parts of the business that would be sold off. It would maybe it might be some of the least contentious parts. I mean, I forget, but when the Issa brothers have bought as the first part that they've sold off has been the, the depots. So is that something that they would they would look at doing? Um, probably in the in the current market, you'd say actually depots are going to have a very high value, seeing as that's an area where actually there's, there's a huge amount of pressure in the market. So maybe that's somewhere where they would go first. And that pressure in the market is something you're acutely aware of at the moment. And, and that's why you're ridiculously busy. It is. So, I mean, it's, I think what we are seeing, I hate the phrase perfect storm, but actually that, that, is, but that is what we are seeing with the pressure, particularly on the retailers, because the, that pressure that they are feeling now um, is coming from every single angle. So what they've got is they've got annualising against numbers that they can't possibly hit later in this year. They've then got um, senior leaders who've said, they're going to be delivering profit higher than the year before they went into COVID. And you've also got inflation coming down the track from every single angle. 
So as a retailer, you are under huge amounts of pressure. Um, so we're starting to see the market go back to what it was pre-COVID. So the big four are losing share and Aldi and Lidl are growing share. Yeah, it was really interesting to look at Sainsbury's last results and where they were talking about focusing their efforts. And they were talking about price cuts. And that seems counterintuitive at a time when everybody is saying, look, prices are going to be rising. We had Reckitt Benkheiser saying just yesterday that they expected the cost to start to go up on huge numbers of their goods because raw materials prices are going up. Absolutely. When I when I when I saw that, that what I looked at it and I was thinking, well, why are you saying what you say when you say it? The reason why they were saying it is that's for the benefit of the shareholders because they announced those price cuts the day before they announced their quarterly results. So it's it's not for the benefit of the customers. It's like, well, we need to have some price cuts. Let's get them out. But I felt it was particularly foolish knowing the amount of inflation that's coming down. Now, maybe they were thinking, well, we're not seeing inflation, so it can't be happening. But it's just been holding off. I mean, certainly I know from a number of my clients, they've already taken inflation to the market this year. So to go to the market twice in one year is something that most suppliers just would absolutely run away from having to do because it's, it's a hard, hard negotiation to try and get your cost increase through. To go twice just shows the pain that they're actually under. So as a consumer, you would expect us to start to see more price increases on the shelves or are they going to box clever and do what a lot of these businesses do, which is use shrinkflation? Um, I think at the moment we are going to, there'll be some elements of shrinkflation, but I, the vast majority of it will be directly straight into, into price. Because um, you can't, if you think about so many of the products, they've, they've shrunk already. So how, how small can you go? Um, so I'd, I'd certainly think that you will be seeing price rises. And, and I think that's once we start getting to October, November, December, into the, the first quarter of next year, that's when we're going to be really seeing the price rises because that's when I think the vast majority of re, uh, suppliers will be taking their costs to the market. I know it seems crazy, but a lot of people are already talking about Christmas shortages for whatever reason, whether it is because of COVID issues, whether it's because of Brexit issues, whether it's just because we can't find enough HGV drivers. There are so many issues affecting the market at the moment. What's your take on on what things are going to be looking like towards the back end of the year? I think the back end of the year is going to be is going to be tough, um, and I think it will be will be tough until we can get certainly on the the supply chain on the haulage side until we can get a long term resolution in, on that front. It will it will be tough. Um, are we going to be seeing huge amounts of shortages over Christmas? No, I don't think we will um, because the supply chain that we have in the UK is one of the most sophisticated in the world. Uh, and I've got every confidence, having worked at every level of it, so having worked in store, worked in supply chain, worked in the, as a buyer, 
I know what goes into it and what the the amount of work that the the manufacturers will do to make sure that they've got their products on the shelves. Because don't forget, it's it's not just the retailers that, that need the products to be sold. The manufacturers need their products to be sold as well. So the whole supply chain is needs to be working well. So I think will we have the abundance that we used to? Maybe we won't. Maybe there won't be quite as a bigger range. Um, I mean, some retailers are taking their ranges down anyway. So that you, you, you may find that actually you don't have the amount of range that you might, would expect. Will you be able to get everything you need over the Christmas period? I, I absolutely believe that you will. Jed, it's been lovely talking to you. Thank you so much. Pleasure. I look forward to speak to you again. So we've seen some pretty empty shelves of late in supermarkets as the argument over who should be allowed to test and release if they're pinged rages on. Yeah, I mean, everyone has been talking about it. The boss of Iceland saying, look, you know, if we're talking about the 16th of August when that doesn't impact us anymore, then, you know, frankly, it's going to take us about that long to, to set up any testing on site. So something needs to be done now because I don't know about you, but the shelves in my local supermarket, you just haven't been able to get much of what you want, particularly when it comes to things like bottled water or frozen fruit, you know, the stuff which doesn't have short shelf life where they have to make sure that that sort of the goods are keeping coming in. Um, But as I say, it's 16 days or so, but it is going to be tough for a lot of businesses in the meantime. Yeah, and also those those pings are causing problems for sunseekers as well too, aren't they, Danny? They are, because a whole load of travel insurance policies won't cover cancellation costs if holidaymakers are told to self-isolate owing to a close COVID contact. You know, I mean, we've seen huge numbers, hundreds of thousands of people being pinged by the NHS app or contacted by the tracing service. Now, if you get a notification from NHS Test and Trace, you are legally required to self-isolate, but a ping from the NHS app is advisory, but strongly recommends that you isolate. Now, data specialist de facto, which analyzes the insurance sector, has, has taken a look about whether or not you're covered if you have to isolate. And it found that 88% of single trip travel insurance policies on the market in the UK would pay out if your holiday was cancelled because you or one of the people you were travelling with had a positive test. It drops to 56% if the cancellation is owing to a self-isolation request. So, you know, that's really concerning for people wanting to get out and have a bit of sun because it's almost identical for annual policies as well. Now, if you are going, you do get pinged, you know, read your policy really carefully, make sure you understand the cover. And if you've got any doubt, do contact your insurer before changing any of your travel plans. And also think about it for domestic travel as well. And I know lots of providers are offering additional COVID insurance on the point of booking to deal with this eventuality. We booked to go to Scotland in a few weeks and uh, I think it's £75 extra just to make sure if anything like this happens, you can cancel and get your money back. But it's just peace of mind. Yeah. So before we move on to Pensions Corner, I know you've been looking into moves to try to clamp down on excessive uh, charging for you know, when you try to top up your electric vehicle. 
Yeah, we know that sales of new petrol or diesel cars will be banned from 2030. So, you know, it stands to reason by 2050, most of us will be driving some kind of electric vehicle. And there's a big concern that if you don't have a drive or a garage, you can't get, uh, you know, charging at your home, then you might end up paying an awful lot more to top up your car than people that do because at the moment there is a disparity between how much it costs to charge at home and public charging and public charging is a lot more expensive at the moment so the transport committee a group of mps has said that consumers need to be protected from these excessive charging so they want to take a look at, at making the sort of charge fairly um, steady across both those points whether it be at home or you know in places like supermarkets They've also said that property developers should be required to provide public charging points and councils should make sure that the charging infrastructure is built in time to deal with demand. And, and they're also talking about trying to create some kind of pricing policy so everyone's not wanting to charge their vehicle at the same time when, you know, putting huge pressure on the national grid. People travel back, leave the office at five, want to plug in at six o'clock. Well, you know, maybe you might find it cheaper. I don't know if you remember the uh, having to run your washing machine late at night. It was Economy 7, it was called. Yeah, yeah. Uh, a sort of similar principle to that. Uh, and I know that an awful lot of people now are looking at putting additional charging points in. We were talking Morrison's earlier. Well, this week it's announced plans to add an extra 100 rapid chargers to its network. And the Issa brothers, who, of course, bought Asda, well, they've announced that they're going to invest £5 million in the Glasgow-based HV Systems to design and manufacture hydrogen vehicles. So there's a lot going on in this space, but there's a lot of concern as well that maybe some consumers won't be as protected as others. Well, it's time for Tom Selby to join us with a bit of pensions chat. So, Tom, we've had... An email from Simone, a podcast listener, who says, my partner and I just had our first child. And brilliantly, we've been showered with lots of different baby gifts, but they're keen to give the daughter a leg up by saving into a junior SIP, which is a self-invested personal pension, mm. or a junior ISA. So what, what Simone wants to know is which one should her and a partner go for? Interesting. Yeah, I'm not sure many kids will necessarily be demanding a sensible savings vehicle for their birthday, but I promise <laughs> yeah. you, they they will thank you later in life if you do make that decision. So probably probably worth going through exactly how the two products work first. So let's start with the junior SIP. So if your child is under 18, you can pay up to £2,880 a year into a junior SIP on their behalf, and the government will instantly top that up with a 25% bonus, taking it up to a maximum of £3,600 a year. So that's the same way that pensions tax relief op operates for an adult SIP, but just with a lower contribution for the junior SIP. And just like a regular SIP, any investment growth the fund enjoys will be tax-free, and the money will then be accessible when your child reaches the UK's normal minimum pension age, or NMPA. That's currently set at age 55 and is due to rise to age 57 in 2028. When they come to make withdrawals from their SIP, so it's now just acting like a regular SIP, then 25% of that withdrawal will be tax-free and the rest will be taxed in the same way as income. So that's how 
junior SIPs work. Junior ICE is slightly different. So a higher annual subscription limit of £9,000 a year. And unlike a junior SIP, there's no upfront government bonus. So if you pay £9,000 in, then the government won't top that up upfront. Whereas with a junior SIP, you get that upfront 25% bonus, albeit on a total contribution of £3,600. Then when you look at investment growth, that's tax-free and your child can take over managing the account from age 16. However, they won't be able to access the funds until their 18th birthday, at which point the junior ISA will convert into a regular adult ISA. So because it becomes a regular adult ISA, just as with the with the junior SIP becomes like a regular SIP and they can access it at 55, a, a junior ISA will become like an adult ISA, meaning that your child can access it tax-free. One important thing to note there is as a parent, you'll no longer have any control over what your child does with the funds from that point in time. So you'll have control <laughs> before they have before they reach 18. But once they get to 18, that pot of money will be theirs to spend as and when they oh, want. Oh, wow. I could imagine having a pot of money at 18. <laughs> you know, the mind boggles at the craziest things people have spent it on. But how much could someone potentially build up in mm. either a junior SIP or an ISA? Yeah, it's a good point on the on the junior ISA. It requires a certain amount of trust in your child to do the sensible thing. I think people tend to do it, but it does require a certain amount of trust. So if we look at what you could save in each product, let's start with a junior SIP. So if we assume 4% annual investment growth after charges, let's say that the maximum is contributed from birth. So that's £2,880 per year as a personal contribution. Obviously, that's topped up by um, the 25% bonus if we assume that's paid in from age zero to age 18 then you could end up with a fund at age age 18 worth 96,000 pounds if that's then left and nothing else is added to it then by age 65 it could be worth as much as 600,000 pounds if it continues to enjoy that four percent investment growth if the amount uh, of contributions there sounds a bit too much if you scale that down a bit to a hundred pounds a month from birth so 1200 pounds a year again that will be topped up to 1500 pounds via tax relief then if you pay that in from age zero to age 18 you'd be looking at a pot worth forty thousand pounds and at 65 that could be worth as much as two hundred fifty-two thousand pounds so from small ac- acorns quite significant pension pots can grow now if we just quickly look at the junior ISA as well. If we do a similar uh, calculation, so same investment growth assumed 4%, the maximum contribution from birth, so that's £9,000 a year, so a bit more, £750,000 a month, then the value at 18 could be £240,000. Again, if that that sounds like too big a contribution, then if we assume £100 a month from birth, so again, £1,200 over the course of the year, assume the same 4% investment growth, then by age 18, you could have an ISA pot worth £30,000. So that's certainly enough potentially to get someone on their housing ladder or to help pay towards a first car or something like that. You can really build up a a decent pot of money if you build it up over time and invest it and, and enjoy that compound growth. So, okay, the question from Simona is, mm. which should she go for? Yeah, uh, as, as you know, we can, we can never answer those kind of questions directly because that would be financial advice. However, in broad 
terms, deciding whether to pay into a junior SIP or a junior ISA on your child's behalf will depend on what your priorities are and what your priorities are for your child. So if you want them to have an easily accessible pot of money from age 18, which, as I said earlier, could potentially be used towards something like a house deposit, then a junior ISA might be preferable. However, if you would prefer to look more long-term and to turbocharge their retirement savings plans. And of course, lots and lots of people aren't saving enough for retirement. So it can be a really good way to get your child off on a, a sound footing as they build towards their financial future. Then a junior SIP might be the best option. And as we've said on this podcast before, actually for lots of people, it will be a combination of the two products. So just as for adults, often it will be a combination of longer term savings in a SIP and perhaps more flexible savings in an ISA in the same way with a junior SIP and a junior ISA you may want to combine the two so they're going to have one pot of money that that your child can access at 18 and one that's there invested for the longer term. And I'm guessing with a junior ISA it's a really good idea if you think your child's going to go off to university to help them pay those fees. Absolutely yeah absolutely. And since we're talking about saving for your children and grandchildren, we thought it was the perfect time to address the thorny issue of pocket money. Jenny Owen is here. The big question is not how much to give your kids, but what they should spend it on. Absolutely. Yeah. Pocket money is a hotly debated topic amongst parents, especially when their kids get to a certain age. When do you start giving your children pocket money? How much is too much? How do you factor in inflation and gradual increases without bankrupting yourself? So a recent study has looked into how kids are spending their allowance and maybe unsurprisingly, gaming has been a rising priority for three years on the trot. Sweets up top the list, followed by gaming, clothes, toys and hobbies. And when asked what they spend their money on, 58% of boys between 8 and 15 years old say gaming is top of their list, compared to just 23% of girls. The trend can also be seen when asked what they save money for, as games, gaming, currency and entertainment sit in the top five goals for lads. For context, the UK gaming market is expected to rise from £5.4 billion in 2020 to £7 billion in 2024. Girls, on the other hand, tend to save for clothes, toys and makeup. I personally found it sweet that girls had gifting for others as one of their top saving priorities, which didn't appear in the boys' top five. And that is very true when comparing the spending habits between me and my brother. Um, Around 77% of British children save at least some of their weekly pocket money and it can be a fantastic way to explain the value of money and basic budgeting from a young age. Mine love buying gaming cash, gaming currency. That Mm. is their number one thing, both girls. And it drives me bonkers because I think that they should have something tangible to show for it, but that's what they want. Yeah, absolutely. And I mean, I used to spend my pocket money on like magazines with toys attached to it when I was really young. So it's a far cry from what I'm used to, for sure. (laughs) Plastic tat. Yes, I similarly had quite a lot of that. But it was exciting when you got something to open like that. Absolutely. Yeah, something that something can hold. Thanks, Jen. That's it for this week's podcast. Next week, I should be joined by our very own Laura Souter making a comeback to the podcast. And also, I'm chatting with Stuart Widdison from Odyssean Investment Trust, a very interesting defence company where a very 
interesting part of his business is completely underappreciated by the market. So you'll find out everything in next week's episode. Catch you then. Before you go, please remember this podcast is for educational purposes and the views expressed don't necessarily reflect those of AJ Bell or Shares Magazine. The podcast isn't telling you whether certain investments are suitable or not. And don't forget that the value of investments can change and you can lose money as well as make it. It's also important to remember that tax rules apply and that the way an investment performed in the past may not be the same as how it behaves in the future. If you want help, go see a qualified financial advisor. Thank you.